Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. I'm pleased to present my conversation with Amy Wagoner, the Chief Practice Innovation Officer at Amlaw 25 law firm Paul Hastings, and Joe Dunn, a former California State Senator, former CEO of the California State Bar, and a highly successful trial attorney. Recently, I had the honor of presenting at a class they teach jointly at UC Irvine School of Law entitled Pushing the AI Frontier. In this episode of the podcast, Amy and Joe talk about how their AI class came about and what practical knowledge they impart to their students, cutting edge projects that both of them are working on, and what they view as the future of the legal industry. A final note, we recorded this podcast with Amy and Joe remotely while sheltering at home due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that many of you will listen to this cooped up at home, juggling childcare, work, and probably many other things. On behalf of the Case Text team, we wish you the best and we're honored to be able to provide you with some interesting perspectives in some trying times. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Amy and Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you both on. Great to be here. It's an honor to be part of it, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, excellent. So, Amy, I'd love for you to start and introduce yourself. And then, of course, Joe, I'd love for you to introduce yourself as well. You both have extremely interesting careers. You're working on very interesting projects as we speak. Uh, But, Amy, I'd love for you to just tell us uh, your background and what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I've been at Paul Hastings uh, in Los Angeles for uh, 25 and a half years now, really long time. And I'm currently serving as the firm's chief practice innovation officer. And what that means is um, my team is responsible for helping our lawyers be uh, more efficient and in how they deliver services to their client and also pursue alternative ways uh, to how they deliver those services. So we have uh, a couple teams in, in my group. One focuses on innovation and knowledge management. And that team has uh, uh, nine what we call practice innovation attorneys who are all substantive experts in our key areas of practice at the firm. Um, They uh, all work for at least six, seven years in in their key practices. They work on things like knowledge management, new technology, uh, coordinating legal updates for our lawyers, forms projects, all that kind of stuff to really create efficiencies and innovation in the practices. Uh, We're also responsible for uh, legal research efforts. We have a research services team uh, that has about 10 people on it that delivers all kinds of legal research to our lawyers, focusing also on uh, training our lawyers on how to conduct legal research through electronic products. We have a team of technologists and project managers that help us deliver all of these resources to our lawyers. And also another team within our group um, is focusing on things like practice management and legal project management. We have uh, lawyers that are focusing on legal project management specifically and doing that work for our our, our 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 lawyers and their clients. And then additionally, we have different types of uh, programs. We're introducing alternative timekeepers to the practices. So as an example, we have a team based uh, primarily in our Atlanta office. uh, We call it the Transactional Services Center that has nine attorneys who uh, work in that group and who uh, work on things like transactional due diligence, um, 
uh, title and survey, uh, non-disclosure agreements, and they all do that at a great pr- price point for our clients. They do it extremely efficiently, and they take advantage of new technology, including some of the AI platforms that are available in the market. So that's kind of the scope of what my, I'm responsible for. That's a broad scope across innovation, across new technology, across new ways of doing business. That's, that's fascinating. Joe, I'd love for you to introduce yourself as well. I'd be happy to. Uh, my pathway to the world of artificial intelligence is, uh, uh, let's just say, it is, well, long and winding along the way. Um, I actually started practicing law not quite, but almost 40 years ago. Uh, I did nothing but large uh, mass tort cases on the plaintiff's side, oftentimes against firms like Amy's, uh back in the 80s and 90s. And then uh, this uh, Minnesota-born Democrat thought he had a good idea of running for the California State Senate in uh, then very deep red Orange County, California in 1998, and not realizing we had no chance to win that race whatsoever. We ended up knocking off the Republican incumbent, still one of the biggest legislative upsets in California history. Uh, Served in the state Senate for eight years, from 98 to 06. Uh, Ran for state AG in the Democratic primary in 2006 until uh, an individual that everybody knows uh, entered that uh, primary and cleaned out uh, everybody else, including myself. That, of course, was Jerry Brown. And he went on, of course, four years later to be uh, governor again of California. I then served as CEO of the California Medical Medical Association, uh, CEO of the State Bar of California, uh, and then uh, our founding dean at UCI Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, asked if I would join uh, the staff and also teach at the law school. My history with that law school actually goes back to the 1990s. I actually started the fight to create that law school, brought all the big firms together uh, to join that fight. We thought it'd be about a six-month battle. Uh, oh, we had no idea about the politics in academia at that time. Uh, but ultimately, almost 10 years later, the school was authorized and uh, Erwin arrived as our founding dean and actually built the law school. Uh, but I joined uh, both staff and also started teaching about five years ago at the law school, uh, including continuing that role under our second dean, Song Richardson. Uh, and I teach a number of courses. One of them I'm honored to teach with uh, Amy herself. Uh, it's called the AI Frontier. Uh, we co-teach it with an individual by the name of Neil Sahota. Uh, Neil is uh, quite famous in the world of AI globally and was part of the team that built the IBM Watson computer a number of years ago. Uh, and it's recognized as a global expert. He also works closely with the law school. Uh, Neil was my first introduction into the world of artificial intelligence uh, uh, probably four or five years ago now. Uh, we've done a number of projects in uh, building out uh, AI platforms in the or in the process of in the legal space, they all relate to assisting lawyers in a courtroom, which is oftentimes the place lawyers would say, well, I can see AI in a lot of different fields, but not in the courtroom, but they're mistaken. Uh, there are some great benefits to using AI in a variety of ways in uh, uh, actual trial practice, meaning you're inside the courtroom skills. Um, and uh, been involved in a number of other uh, AI projects, but uh, mostly has been the AI Frontier course, uh, which I know we're going to talk uh, about. Uh, but that's a quick overview of my very uh, winding pathway to the world of artificial intelligence. Well, I think Joe, that's a great that's a great segue to that AI Frontiers class. And and you know, I'll note that I had the the honor of being invited by the two of you to to speak in that class, and I was I was fascinated. I was really encouraged by 
how advanced your students were, how much they knew, how much, you know, how sophisticated their questions were. But just for the benefit of our listeners, Amy, uh, I'd love to get a sense from you as to um, how this class came about, um, you know, the curriculum of it, what you hope to impart to students and you know, why you think uh, a course like this is so important uh, in, in the year 2020. Well, let's start with why the class is so important in the year 2020. Um, I think that one of the things that law firms are really starting to embrace is the importance of applying technology to legal work. And um, many of the, the students that are coming out of law school are really interested in technology and they want to use technology to be more efficient in how they get work done. And uh, they get to law firms and they, they really want to embrace it to take advantage of it. So I think what appealed to me about participating in this class was that UC Irvine was really, um, no pun intended, on the frontier, which is also part of the name of the class, um, in introducing artificial intelligence into the curriculum uh, for, for, for not just this one class, but you know more broadly at the school. So uh, I met Joe through um, a, a partner in our Orange County office who um, connected us. I think it was related to the UN efforts that you were working on, Joe. And I was then asked to be a guest speaker in the class, and it was really fun. And I've done it. I did it twice last year, and then Joe and Neil asked me to join them to teach the class this current semester that we're in. And the class is really interesting when you when you go through the items that are on the curriculum. We talk about how AI is applied to transactional work, and we've had speakers come in, for example, from Kira, um, to talk about uh, their artificial intelligence platform and how lawyers can use that for transactional due diligence. We have looked at it in the context of litigation. We had a, another speaker from Paul Hastings, uh, Tom Barnett, who's our special counsel of data science, come in and talk about artificial intelligence and e-discovery and, and what AI means when you're applying it to litigation and to investigations. We've also had some speakers at uh, other vendors, including um, Thomas Sue from Legal Nation, Justin Brownstone from Gavalytics as well, also talking about the application of AI to litigation-related work. But what's also really interesting is the, the other... Um, issues that arise with AI. So for example, Dean Song Richardson of, of the law school came in and she gave a lecture on societal bias in AI platforms and how that can really um, can change the results that the AI delivers if bias isn't effectively managed when you're training uh, a system and you're applying machine learning to it. We're having another speaker come in, um, Samir uh, Singh from the law school who's going to be talking about the black box of AI and to really uh, help us understand what, what's behind that and what is going on within the artificial intelligence technology. Um, interestingly, this past week, and it was somebody who uh, spoke at the same time that you did, Anand, um, was Dylan Watkins, who came from a company from, called uh, Reality Smash, where they are applying virtual and augmented reality uh, coupled with AI to learning um, capabilities that students could use to get experience uh, doing trial work and experience in the courtroom as well, which is something that Joe had referenced when he was when he was talking about his background. So those are kind of the things that we cover, and I think it really gives students a broad brush um, in how AI can be applied, and in some instances they get hands-on experience working with a lot of these products. You know, I, I think, Amy, it's, it's a really novel approach to bring in a number of these service providers and folks on the very front lines, right? The non-academics or non-pure academics, the folks who are, are kind of in the trenches um, assisting litigators like the ones at Paul Hastings and other firms 
do their work, the ones that are thinking about, you know, out of the box solutions like Reality Smash with with Dylan's product that allows uh, students, allows practitioners to have in a virtually simulated way the experience of being in a courtroom without actually having to travel there and, and be there in front of an intimidating judge. Um, and so, so that's fascinating. I, I love how the, the class is structured and I think it could be, could serve as a template for a lot of other courses. Jill, let me ask you this. I mean, based on interactions with the students in the class who, based on my very brief experience, were very engaged and very interested in, in exactly what Amy discussed, what are they looking for in this class? I mean, they could take any number of classes at UCI. Um, what, what do they want to pull out of this class? And what are they hoping to, to learn to equip them to be better lawyers or maybe um, you know, technology service providers or systems builders or whatever they want to be in the future? It's a great question. Um, interestingly enough, I think uh, we're in the third semester of this class um, that Amy uh, did a great job describing. Um, and I would say the majority of the students, it's curiosity driven by the knowledge that as they enter their legal careers, whatever area of practice they choose, Technology is going to be a much bigger role for their generation as practicing roles, uh, lawyers, as it was for earlier generations. Now it's been part of uh, the legal practice for a long time, but as it gets more sophisticated, particularly with uh, artificial intelligence, they're aware of those concepts, um, probably in many respects uh, fearful of them uh, in the sense, is it really going to eliminate jobs and therefore my, my employment opportunities are limited? Uh, it's a natural reaction, but it, it's not uh, supported by the facts, uh, quite the contrary. Um, and I think it really is a group of students every semester. Some are very sophisticated on technology. Some have a level of sophistication that's equal to roughly the entire kind of 20-something generation right now, which is far more sophisticated as a generation on all technologies than my generation as a baby boomer was. Um, and so they, they want to get a more exposure to the issue of artificial intelligence, knowing that they're going to need to be familiar with it and have to interact with it as they go forward with their careers. I think that drives a lot of them. There are a number who actually have very specific projects in mind that they wanna get involved in uh, and really roll up their sleeves, um, whether they're thinking about ultimately moving out of the practice of law and into an entrepreneurial phase of life, which we encourage exponentially. Um, we do have some of those as well, but I think just plain curiosity, knowing that they're gonna see this technology as they get out into the world of practicing law is what sparks the interest in the course. And it's, as Amy said, it's very practical. It's every law school now has an AI in the law, you know, heavily IP law and et cetera. Very important examination. This course is 100% roll up your sleeves and get into the practical side of AI and the practice of law. So to, to, to that point, what's really interesting about the hands-on application of AI is we have several group projects, and I'll talk about two of them, and maybe, Joe, you could talk about the other two, but some of our practice innovation attorneys at Paul Hastings are actually working with subsets of students within the class to actually test out Kira and test out Raven to see if we can extract deal terms from those documents. And it's been a real learning experience for the, um, the students in the class because not only are they getting trained on the importance of a credit agreement to a 
finance transaction, or alternatively, what is an IPO prospectus, and what are the terms that are within those documents that are important for us to be using for um, for other purposes at the firm. They're also getting hands-on use of this, this technology, which are tools that they may be using when they get into practice and they get to big law and they see that law firms are taking advantage of products like Kira and Raven to get work done. But maybe, Joe, you could talk about the other two projects. Happy to, Amy. Um, the other two, we have four small groups, as Amy indicated, uh, two working with Paul Hastings, as Amy just described. Uh, the two others, uh, one is overseen by Neil Sahota, who I mentioned earlier, and they that group is working in partnership with both Neodologic, and based on the East Coast, that develops no-code apps in the legal services space primarily, but not exclusively, and works with only a handful of law schools to involve the law students in that process. Uh, this is their first foray on the West Coast with us at UCI Law through our class and that group. Um, and the students in Neodologic are building uh, the first step of an incremental process of an entire California civil rights app uh, for your average person on the street uh, in partnership with the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Uh, that this has been a vision of uh, the California DFEH uh, department to have this publicly available civil rights app so that you know, someone can go on and figure out what their legal rights are in certain uh, 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 highly popular areas without having to figure out if they have they can afford a lawyer all of the things where we care about and the, the sadly growing justice gap in society um, and specifically this particular app the first step of what the DFEH sees as a very large app in the future it relates to uh, parental leave uh, law here in California, which is very complicated, ever-evolving, ever-changing. There's federal law interaction to it, uh, and the law students are in uh, are writing the scripts where Neotologic is building the technical side, uh, all in partnership with the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Those are the, that's Neil's group. Then my group, no surprise, being the politician, uh, my group is focused on AI-related legislation in Sacramento. Uh, they are actually uh, pushing their own legislative proposal, which uh, an author agreed to introduce, um, and also are the pro bono staff of a AI select committee in Sacramento in the California State uh, Senate. Uh, a select committee uh, does not have the power to pass legislation. It only has the power to look uh, through multiple hearings at a particular issue and make recommendations to the legislature on that topic. In this case, it's on the use of artificial intelligence by governmental entities in California. And my group is also a pro bono staff to that select committee. Joe, UCI Law is one of the newest law schools in the country. Do you think uh, the fact that you know a lot of the curriculum was built from the ground up within the last, well, very, very recently, right? We're only on our second dean in the history of the law school, you know, and I wonder whether um, the fact that UCI appears to have a very innovative bent and a very futuristic uh, take on legal education could be because of that. Am I mistaken by that? I mean, was that was that a, a um, you know has that enabled UCI to be on the forefront of this? You've absolutely put your finger on our greatest strength at UCI Law. It's youth. 
Um, it doesn't have 300 years of tradition that it just has to not upset, so to speak. It, it is creating its own tradition. Um, and so from the very get-go, is that's been the greatest strength. It's why um, our, our inaugural dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, said prior to the arrival of the first students in the fall of 2009, we will be a top 25 law school in its first 10 years. Well, of course, everybody in law academia said, that's crazy. It'll never happen. You know, we appreciate it, Erwin, but not going to happen. Well, it did. Uh, then Erwin uh, finished up his 10 years. That's all he committed to. Uh, he does, he has, holds a very strong view that no dean should serve longer than 10 years. Um, and our second dean is Song Richardson, who took over a few years ago. Um, Song uh, looked at what Irwin built in his first 10 years, along with, of course, our faculty and great student involvement and all the factors that make for a great institution, um, and how to make a decision about how to keep the dream of Irwin Chemerinsky going beyond the top 25 and, frankly, in the top 10, whereas our uh, Song calls it, uh, for the second 10 years, it's top 10 in 10, meaning the second 10 years. Um, well. Irwin said it best when he described the need to be innovative coming right out of the box when we uh, built the law school. Um, just creating another top law school that's like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Berkeley, et cetera, it, it, nobody's going to crack into that. Those are well-established schools, well-established curriculum and traditions, and just trying to be one of them is not going to get you to the rank position. We're going to have to do things differently, yet still adhere to all the necessary foundational pieces that allows law students from UCI Law to pass the bar, be hired by firms like Amy's and others, et cetera. Um, technology and innovation was really the seed that said we can enter that speed race of top law schools all going 200 miles an hour uh, and us entering the 200 miles an hour under the track uh, when we started wasn't going to get us in the top 25. We had to do something different, meaning we had to drive faster than 200 miles an hour. That was Irwin's analogy, and we all thought it was a good one. It was the ability to be innovative in the ever-changing law education environment. Easy for us, very difficult for Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. Uh, obviously, great institutions, but change is not necessarily their greatest asset. Right. So Irwin and now Song have really built a new curriculum, yet adheres to the standards that are necessary, but with new and innovative, very practical, focused uh, uh, education. So what Song has done now is say, okay, we are going to uh, uh, actually bury the AI into the DNA of the law school itself. So yes, uh, Amy and I and Neil teach the AI Frontier course, but now every course, including the first year curriculum, has a component of AI built into it by each and every one of the faculty, whether that faculty is first year contract, first year torts, third year antitrust, whatever the case may be, there is an AI component into it. Um, and of course, we are uh, more and more doing more and more external facing through the law school on the AI and the legal and justice world, working with uh, several of the superior courts in California to assist them in building AI platforms to help make the court process processes, more user-friendly, particularly for the unrepresented, and all kinds of projects uh, now that are moving forward uh, on the uh, on outwardly focused uh, AI work by the law school in the community, both law and uh, the court system as well. 
And it's uh, to Song's credit, it was a brilliant strategy for our second 10 years, and it really has brought us a lot of focus. Um, but more than anything else, uh, it's really about graduating law students who are to take firms like Amy's will say, wow, they're coming out with a level of AI sophistication as it relates to the practice of law that differentiates that graduate from that one from the law school down the street. Uh, and it, it seems to be uh, uh, gaining traction out there in the legal community. And Amy is obviously a, a very uh, kind of obvious, <laughs> is a very, a very obvious or clear choice to this, right? I mean, she is the leader of this very large um, a kind of umbrella organization at, at Paul Hastings um, that, that really takes innovation and runs with it in a material way at, at the, the highest levels of, of legal practice. Um, Amy, have you, you know, let me ask you this question. Um, have you seen a lot of what Joe is is speaking about among the law students at UCI? Uh, you, you know, as someone who is at the um, you know in in the kind of epicenter of practical AI used in in uh, the delivery of legal services, what are you seeing among the students that you're teaching? Well, what I'm seeing among the students that we're teaching at UC Irvine is a real curiosity on technology and how it's going to be changing the practice. I think that, that that's the thing that I, I really see that I think is interesting is, is curiosity on what is this? How is it applicable? Thinking really deeply and differently about how when they get into, into the practice, whether they go to big law or they go somewhere else, how their, their role and the work that they do is really going to be evolving. So I think that's the piece that I find the most enjoyable about working with the students is just they, how curious they are about all of the different ways that we can apply this technology to the efficiency and to, of, of delivering legal services and how they really just want to embrace it and they really want to learn about it. That's uh, the, the thing that I like the most is just how engaged and curious they are. Amy, I was having a conversation um, a week ago with – uh, a person named Monet Fauntleroy, who you may know, who's a, a knowledge management director based in New York City at the firm Cooley. And one of the things mm -hmm. that she said that, that really fascinated me was, um, was that in her interactions with the youngest attorneys, I mean, some maybe even some are associates, but first, second year attorneys, was this very refreshing set of high expectations for what technology should do in law practice today, that maybe an attorney even 10 years out, not even 20 or 30 out, but 10 years out, may just not have because they have been accustomed and accommodated to what is uh, at a firm and what is currently available to them, where a first year comes in and says, well, I have access to all of these consumer technologies and all of this social media and all of these tools and apps on my phone. Certainly, there must be enterprise equivalents of this, right? And that fascinated me. And she talked about how a lot of the youngest attorneys coming in can in some ways be the vanguards of new technology because they could say, wait a second, there's not a better way to do that. And at that point, red flags go up and, and maybe the folks who have been doing it for 10, 20, 30 years can say, oh, well, maybe there should be a better way to do this. Have you seen that among not only the uh, the students at UCI that you teach, but also among the youngest attorneys that you work with at Paul Hastings? 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really interesting because there's so many different generations in the workforce right now and also people who over the course of their lives have had just different levels of exposure to technology as they've evolved and they've been educated and they've, they've worked. I mean, I hate to admit this on a podcast, but I learned how to type on a typewriter, right? And I didn't really start using personal computer until I got to college. And then, you know, I, I can't even remember when, when email started, but it was right when I, I, I went into the workforce. So I, I wasn't, when I was, you know, really young, I wasn't using a computer. It was something that I, I, I learned how to do and how to use as I progress mostly through my career. But now we have people who are entering the workforce who have been using technology since, you know, basically when they were born. And they have just a completely different expectation on how people should be working and the types of resources that they should have available to them. And it's great because it really just speaks to the direction that, um, we're heading in as, you know, as an industry, but also just the way that people are going to be working now. And uh, the rest of us are all going to have to catch up to, to that as they take on leadership roles and they move throughout our organizations and become successful and they change things. So I, I, I completely agree with Monet's point. Joe, um, I want to kind of double back to one of the things that, that uh, I think you touched on in your introduction, um, and, and that is that you are the founding chair and a member of the board of directors of the Zero Abuse Project, which is something that I know uh, is, some, is something that you're very passionate about, that, it, that, that is uh, at the intersection of AI and um, you know, policy and AI and, and criminal justice. Can you tell us what, what that project is, um, how you got into that, and how it might give us a, a bit of a window into the future of technology and AI applied to criminal justice? Happy to, uh, Anand. What started um, the AI project that you're referring to, and I'll get into it in a little more detail here, um, really was as a result of my work in representing survivors of childhood sexual abuse as a lawyer in the 80s and 90s, and I'm assisting some of the lawyers in that space now, and also doing legislative work around the country to open up avenues to the courthouse for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, even where the abuse occurred many years ago. Um, but uh, when having done that work for, oh boy, almost 40 years uh, in some, very, some role or another, um, it became clear to a number of us that there are certain behavioral patterns that large institutions follow when they discover that some adult in that institution has been sexually abusing children inside that institution. Um, and it seems most large organizations follow a fairly similar pattern. There'll be nuanced differences in that internal strategy. Um, but let me just boil it down to one, one simple phrase is most institutions, for a lot of very complicated reasons, try to hide the problem versus disclosing it, uh, turning the predator over to law enforcement, et cetera. And because many of these organizations are very large and very sophisticated, religious organizations, uh, other or non-religious organizations, sports organizations, now we're seeing academia have the problem, all kinds of very large institutions where you, where part of the mission of the institution is to put adults and children together for some purpose. It may be sports, it may be education, it may be religious, all kinds of different reasons. There's some pretty high profile organizations that most of the public is well aware of because they've been in the press for decades wrestling with this problem. The premise that we had developed over the years was that if you could understand the um, 
uh, externally observable behavioral patterns of such an institution, if you could understand those, uh, which requires a massive amount of data and connecting a lot of dots uh, in lay terms, you could in essence peel back the layers of a cover-up and discover not only who that institution has been hiding internally, but also who is orchestrating the cover-up. Um, so we decided to see if artificial intelligence could be that tool, what we refer to as an investigative tool for both law enforcement and other purposes, to uncover the cover-ups by large institutions. Um, and we, we had that premise a few years ago. We finally decided, okay, let's see if this really can be built. We picked one particular institution, well-known of, of having this problem, a lot of publicly available data about the institution uh, provided by that institution itself. Uh, and we took all that data and put it into a database, raw database, and then structured database, and uh, applied AI to it. So obviously, very simply stated, that process. Um, and we're very near the point of minimum viable product MVP of that prototype. Um, but in lay terms, it was it's, we utilized AI as an investigative tool to peel back the layers of a cover-up by an institution who is hiding sexual predators of children. We rely on the conclusion of the institution itself about who is a predator of children. We don't look for allegations, rumors. The AI piece is not focused on the predator. It's not focused on the survivor. It's focused on the institutional behavior uh, that occurs when that institution concludes that so-and-so adult was sexually abusing children inside the institution. Uh, we have a lot of interest uh, uh, in that uh, platform when we hit MVP. It was not designed to be publicly available, um, but law enforcement, no surprise, both local, state, national, and even international is very focused on it. We presented on that platform to the United Nations annual AI for Good Global Conference in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, and a lot of interest. And, um, it's been fascinating uh, and to watch the ripple effects of interest in that platform. We figured law enforcement, uh, academic researchers, a few other institutions would be interested in the platform and, and conclusions we could draw through the use of this AI platform. Uh, we never anticipated the insurance industry would reach out to us uh, and say, well, wait a minute, uh, we have a lot of data, uh, claims data, on when folks make claims against an institution we insure uh, for childhood sexual abuse uh, can the platform be uh, expanded to help us develop standards of practice for institutions that we, the insurer, would require uh, before we issue a liability policy as it relates to the sexual abuse of children. So it's been a fascinating endeavor, a learning process for me, the non-technical person on the call. Um, but uh, it's uh, been amazing and a labor of love and passion for everybody that has touched uh, the project, as you can well imagine. It is incredibly, incredibly interesting. I think, you know, large scale, uh, big data pattern matching, like what you're describing, holds so much promise, right? In exactly the areas that you're mentioning, in fraud detection, in, you know, any number of massive large scale societal problems. I, I think that's, that's fascinating. And I, and I think you'd agree with me, Joe, that we're really just at 
uh, at the very earliest stages of, of uh, where this ultimately could go. Um, Amy, I want to bring you in here. I, I, you, you know, look, you started uh, at Paul Hastings um, you know, at, at a, a relatively junior level, and then you've moved all the way up to uh, running this very large multi-office, um, you know, I believe multinational organization within Paul Hayes, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it, it, you know, what, you, what are you working on right now uh, that, that harnesses a lot of the most recent tech that you see out there that you've cultivated and brought on and vetted at Paul Hastings. Um, what are those, those projects right now, uh, you know, whether those are experimental projects or passion projects that you're working on in order to optimize the delivery of legal services? I'd say probably one of the most interesting projects that we're working on is the implementation of Salesforce for legal project management. So we built a proprietary tool to help our lawyers more effectively manage the work on their matters so they can create budgets in these tools, they can track against their budgets, and then they can obviously communicate with their clients about the status of the legal work. But um, we've outgrown our own ability in-house to build a tool like that, and we really needed to to manage a tool like that, and we really needed something a bit more sophisticated. So we actually licensed Salesforce, and we are implementing that tool right now to um, – uh, at the minimum match, but ideally be significantly better than what we have internally uh, built for our clients. And it'll be a tool that our lawyers can access, you know, on on their um, on their mobile devices. They can access that at their desktops at Clipbook as well, and it'll really give them information about where things stand on the progress of their work on their matters. And it's really on the business of law side as opposed to the substance of legal work. But I think that's probably one of our most interesting projects that we have going. How many law firms out there use Salesforce? I'm fascinated by uh, you know, the use of a, a CRM at, at a law firm, and I think I think law firms, um, you know, are almost um, uh, you know the, these kind of unicorn types of organizations. I feel like uh, a lot of the same enterprise tech used in uh, you know 90 percent of businesses for some reason doesn't attach oftentimes to law firms. Yet you've decided to bring on a really really uh, high performance tool like Salesforce. What precipitated that? Uh, why did you choose to do it? And what benefits are you getting? Uh, the benefits that we're getting is it's a really sophisticated platform that can do a lot of different things. Um, and we um, we precipitated, the, the decision making was around the fact that it was just so powerful and that we were really being given a lot of options and flexibility with a tool like that as well. You asked me how many firms are using Salesforce. I don't really know. I can think of a couple of firms off the top of my head that I know are, are using this platform and are looking at different ways that they can figure it, configure it beyond CRM. But it's, it's, it's a little bit unique what we're doing. Um, but I think it's going to be a really powerful application that supports our lawyers and our clients. That's excellent. That's excellent. And I'd love to return to you for, for you know, and feel free to, to burst in with any other kind of uh, uh, experimental or passion projects that, that you are working on um, that, that, you know, really that you've been, you've been building for a while that you think can, can deliver uh, a lot of value. Um, do any come to mind? Any additional ones I should say come to mind? Um, one of the other areas that we are working on is what I had talked about earlier is our transactional services center. This is um, our, our team that's based in Atlanta that I had mentioned earlier that is a team of nine attorneys who are really focusing on uh, transactional work. So, you know, they do non-disclosure agreements, they do diligent due diligence, they do title and survey work. Um, they have a whole, you know, 
set of work that they do for our lawyers in 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 transactions. They're also applying Kira to get their work done, uh, which is I, I think really interesting because they can apply artificial intelligence technology to reduce the cost of the legal services to our lawyers on transactional work by anywhere from thirty to forty percent as well. So the, we, we call it the TSC. The TSC is really something that's been quite successful at our firm, um, and it's something that we intend to grow as well. So I'd say that's probably another one of our passion projects that we just really feel that we want to be successful and that um, is heading in a really positive direction. And our lawyers are incredibly satisfied with the work that they're getting uh, out, of, out of the TSC. So that's been another great success. That's really great to hear. Um, Joe, I want to ask you, um, you know, one question about the UNAI for Good uh your project that you're that you're working on, and I know that you're working with uh, a, a friend of mine named Ali Shahidi, who's actually been on this podcast before. He is the chief innovation officer over at Shepherd Mullen. I want to get into that, and then I want to um, you know wrap up by asking the two of you um, you know to to you know break out your crystal balls and think about where law and the legal industry is going in 15 or 20 years. Uh, so let me start out by asking you, Joe, uh, what is the UN AI for Good project? And um, what can you tell us about the next um, California event for that AI for Good pro project that is law-focused or law-specific? Happy to. Um, the AI for Good conference, uh, sponsored by the UN, technically by one of its agencies uh, that goes by the acronym of ITU. We don't need to get into the details of that one. But um, it was started about four or five years ago by a small group of individuals, including uh, none other than our co-instructor, uh, Neil Zahoda. And it was designed to uh, look on a global basis at the growing use of AI, um, but focusing on where AI can be utilized for good, meaning to accomplish um, overall societal goals that pretty much every nation in the world would agree uh, with. Um, and those societal goals for the UN are defined by a, a group of 17 uh, sustainable development goals, SDGs, as the UN calls them, that they adopted roughly 10 years ago with a goal of reaching those um, goals, 17 goals, by 2030. It includes things, some various obvious things like uh, clean environment and uh, adequate food supply for the world and you know things that we all understand from a macro global basis. Um, and it's how do you accomplish those? Obviously, each one of those is very, very complicated. The AI for Good conference was designed to look at the use of AI and its role in accomplishing all 17 uh, SDGs as adopted by the United Nations. Uh, now for the legal community, one of those SDG relates to law and justice, access to justice uh, uh, in, throughout the world. Um, so right in our kind of sweet spot as lawyers, the legal profession and, and the judicial branch of government. Um, so the, that's what the whole focus of the AI for Good conference has been. Um, it has grown exponentially in its few years of existence. Uh, the facility that they do the global annual conference is, is in Geneva, uh, Switzerland. It's offered in May every year. They do not charge to attend. That's 
a UN policy, but they've outgrown the facility there. And so quiet discussions started a while back about finding alternative locations for the AI for Good Global Conference. Well, they're still under contract in the Geneva facility through next uh, May 2021. Um, and uh, just to give you an example, uh, they had uh, 3,200 attend last May in Geneva, but they had 8,000 applications to attend. Uh, so you can see they're way beyond uh, their limitation already. So a number of cities opted to uh, enter the competition, so to speak, about a new location uh, to be considered at least. I mean, it was several large cities in China, New York, and, and of course, Los Angeles, and et cetera, um, major uh, locations from around the world. Well, when all was said and done, and this is where Amy and I were first introduced because she became a big part of the effort to uh, recruit the UN to take a serious look at the Anaheim Convention Center uh, here in Anaheim, California. Um, most people don't know that the Anaheim Convention Center is the largest convention center west of the Mississippi in the United States. That, that's kind of a shock to everybody. And of course, our asset here locally is Disneyland. It happens to be right across the street from it. Um, and they sent three delegations over the course of several months to take a look at the, the site, as they did many other sites, and ultimately chose uh, Anaheim. Now, we were supposed to start this incrementally with a, uh, a summit for AI for Good for the Americas, meaning South America, Central, North America, obviously. Um, that was supposed to be this September. However, we were in the planning process of which Amy and, and uh, Ali, who you mentioned, are, are part of that process, as well as many other of the very large firms. The uh, Then, of course, we've hit this pandemic that you referenced, and everything, of course, has been delayed. Uh, the UN is now considering the alternative approach. Uh, it looks like there will be uh, a global conference this September in Geneva, uh, since there isn't one in, in May, a month and a half from now. Uh, and then they will do the last one under contract in Geneva next May, June time period. No date has been selected. And it looks like uh, the uh, first AI for Good global conference in Anaheim will be September of 2021. Most of us in this planning process, uh, I won't speak for Amy, but I suspect she agrees. Uh, we're a bit relieved, actually, because trying to plan a global conference in Anaheim for this September, very tight time frame. Uh, now we have, obviously, about a year and a half to plan for it. Now we're expecting probably 15 to 20,000 in attendance for that. The interesting thing for our discussions, and then I'll, I'll stop uh, uh, on is, that um, for the first time ever, at our suggestion, the UN is willing to have a law and justice track at the AI for Good conference. They've never done that before. Um, and so there were a lot of planning is going around that by most of the global law firms, uh, including Amy's. And that planning process is just underway before the pandemic hit. Uh, we haven't stopped. We've slowed it a little bit until all these dates are uh, sorted out. Um, but there will be a whole track, well, it might be one or two days, we haven't determined that yet, uh, that talks about the role of artificial intelligence in the practice of law, in the delivery of justice through judicial systems, uh, and so forth. And there's been a lot of interest on a global basis for involvement in that track. Um, they've asked us to uh, do a mini version of it in Geneva in September, uh, just as a uh, kind of a teaser for what's coming up in Anaheim and the same for the last. Yeah, I forget global conference in Geneva next May, June time period. So we'll give several teaser presentations uh, 
and then uh, the big, uh, huge conference in Anaheim coming in September of 2021. Amy, from from your perspective, uh, why is this, uh, you know, the the law and justice track of the AI for Good conference that the UN is sponsoring or the UN agency is sponsoring, you know, why is it so important, right? From the Paul Hastings perspective, from your perspective as someone who's on the forefront of practice innovation, um, why is participating in and in fact helping plan a conference like this um, so critical to your role? Well, for me personally, I think it's just really about creating awareness um, and learning about what's happening with AI in the legal community. Um, one of the things that um, is just so interesting is how many, how much growth there's been in legal technology in in the last you know four to five years, where they are building technology that's built on artificial intelligence for in support of lawyers and the legal practice. And I think learning about that and promoting that about that and um, really understanding what's happening there so that law firms and our clients and people who are just operating in the sector can really start taking advantage of this and, mo- and, and moving it forward. You know, unfortunately, the legal industry tends to be a little bit behind other industries and taking advantage of technology. But I think it's great that there's this track because um, it really helps propel all of these important technologies that are coming out and are really trying to change how lawyers um, change how lawyers practice and also really better support their clients. So, Amy, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I want to I want you and Joe to break out your crystal balls here and and take uh, take a look at um, what what you think the legal industry and the legal profession, the practice of law, you know, however you know whatever perspective you want to. To apply to it, uh, how is that going to change in uh, in fifteen or twenty years? Based on your twenty five years of experience, Amy, uh, at the forefront of this, Paul <laughs> Hastings, you know, I mean that that is, um, you know, you have seen a lot of changes already. Uh, you've implemented a lot of changes. You've led and managed um, the, the strategy and um, it, you know and direction of a lot of that at Paul Hastings. Where are we going to be in 20 years uh, from your perspective? Wow, uh, 20 years, that's a long time. Um, I think in 20 years, we're going to have a lot less floor space. (laughs) That's the first thing. Um, I think lawyers are going to be working a lot more remotely. I think the technology that lawyers have at their fingertips is going to really be significantly evolved to help them uh, work much more easily from anywhere than they they have been up, up until now. Um, I think the expectation that lawyers have technology skills that are much deeper than they have today is going to, uh, it's just going to be par for the course. I think that there's going to be a lot more lawyers also who are in the practice who grew up, um, you know, as, as digital natives and that their expectation is that this is how they're going to practice. This is, this is the way that they're going to work. And, you know, we're just, it, it's just going to be a really different type of environment with people just depending so much more heavily on technology to support the practice um, as opposed to just the business of law. And I, 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 I that, that's where I think we're heading. That, that your, your answer brought in um, and folded in so many different, uh, um, you know, changes that, that, that we've discussed on this podcast over the last, you know, 35 plus episodes. Uh, so that, that's fascinating. You talked about remote work, you talked about, you know, digital natives and millennials or generation Z or whatever the next one is called, uh, and how they're going to affect, um, affect the workforce. And then you talked about, um, you know, something that, that, that is incredibly important. And that is, um, you know, digital and technological 
competence competency requirements, you know, the fact that understanding um, technological systems and understanding innovation and and uh, in just general uh, legal tech and enterprise level tech is on its way to becoming the norm, the baseline where you start as a lawyer. Not you know that that doesn't make you tech savvy. That just makes you another lawyer at a at a top you know prominent shop like Paul Hastings. So I, I, I loved I love that that answer. Yeah. Brought together a lot. Um, it's really it, it's interesting to listen to you say it that way because it harkened me back to all of the training that we provide both our summers and our entering associates when they join on all of the legal technology tools that we have. Um, and really making sure that they understand how do you apply this to pra the practice day to day because these are the tools that you need in order to deliver services and to be efficient. Um, and we have a whole technology track for our summers and also for our entering associates when they join as well. So it's we really put a heavy heavy emphasis on this. That's that's great. I think that's you know training at law firms and training of new new attorneys is such a critical part of. I'd imagine your your role as the the practice innovation leader at the firm. Uh, that, that's that's great to hear, um, Joe. I want to ask you the same question I asked Amy, and that is from your perspective, what do you see uh, coming up in the next uh, twenty years? Twenty years from now, what will the practice of law, the legal industry, the profession look like? I'm going to put it in more macro terms uh, than uh, Amy did. Um, uh, particularly with respect to artificial intelligence, the fundamental change that is coming to all areas of the practice of law is so exponentially large that it's tough for anyone, including those who sit on the leading edge of AI and the law, can ultimately see. And I want to draw an analogy, if I can. I'm uh, of the generation, uh, the last few uh, law school graduating classes that had no access to computerized legal research. Those early tools that started to appear were in the mid-80s. So I was one of the last classes that we only learned the, the old-fashioned way on how to do legal research. And when those early tools uh, arrived in law schools and in the marketplace, I think most of us lawyers of my generation saw it as, oh, that's a clever little sidelight. Um, but, you know, it isn't going to fundamentally change what lawyers do when it comes to legal research. We could not have ever imagined that that technological introduction in the mid-80s ultimately has created uh, traditional law libraries as a relic of ancient times. We could have never envisioned that. We would have denied it vehemently that those tools that just arrived and we, look, we looked at them as kind of quaint uh, would have ultimately such a fundamental impact on legal research, which is so critical, of course, to every practice of law. I truly believe that artificial intelligence now is poised to have such a fundamental impact on how we practice law. There are many technological tools, all have impacts in areas or certain services and et cetera. But AI in particular, to me, has the fundamental has the ability to fundamentally change how we practice of law in practice law. In my view, my view for the far better for both the lawyers and, of course, the clients uh, that they serve. But I truly believe, Anand, that in response to your question, 20 years from now, 
particularly when it comes to AI, although there'll be other emerging technologies. Um, the practice of law is going to look fundamentally different, I believe, better. There will be some core aspects of the practice of law that will never change. Law school, as we all know, teaches us how to think like a lawyer. We always have to be trained how to think like a lawyer. But how we implement that in our careers as lawyers is fun. Uh, we are in the early stages of fundamental change, the scope of which I don't think any of us can ultimately imagine. Well, well said, Joe. I really appreciate that answer. I want to take this opportunity to thank both of you, uh, Amy, Joe, not just for joining me on the podcast, but for um, you know at your at your levels in you know what you've done. Uh, you continue to give back to the legal community in in planning conferences like the AI for Good conference, uh, in teaching uh, you know class at, at UCI Law. Um, it, it's it's extremely encouraging uh, as to the future of the legal industry to see the two of you who are very prominent members of the of the profession, um, you know, giving back in the way that you're giving back. So thank you for that, and of course. Thank you for joining me on the Modern Lawyer podcast. Uh, this has been uh, extremely fascinating. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer. And check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.